Last week, we talked about the necessity of prayer in our lives. And we discussed the fact that it was on the way to pray that Peter and John came across an opportunity to be used by God. We talked about the fact that it is those that are seeking God and pouring themselves out to God, pouring their hearts out to Him, that He chooses to fill and to use. How can you be used by God? How can you be able to be poured out into other people's lives for their own good nourishment if you are not yourself being filled by God? And so we talked about the necessity of prayer. This week, we're going to look at some of the same verses, but we're going to consider what the crippled man and what the crowd were looking for from Peter and John. We're going to think about, discuss what they had their eyes set on, what they were hoping for versus what they received. So would you open your Bibles to chapter 3 with me of Acts, Acts 3, 1 through 16. Would you stand with me as we read? Acts 3, 1 through 16. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from him, from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up. And immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and the righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but to put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, It is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man, whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Would you raise your hands and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise your name for your goodness to us. We thank you for the assurance that you 
Give us that where two or three are gathered in your name, there you are among them. You are God and you are in our midst. You are the mighty one who saves. You reign over all things. And I ask that you would reign over us, not just as Lord and God. Father, we know that you already do. You reign over all people. But I ask that you would reign as Father God and as Lord and Savior of all who are here. That we would look to you with love, with an acknowledgement that we need wisdom that comes from above. Not the wisdom of this world that comes so naturally to us. Not the wisdom of the world that is programmed inside of our hearts and minds from birth. We need your wisdom, your instruction. Would you teach us? Give us the mind of Christ, and it's in his name, which is precious to us. Amen. And please be seated. <clears throat> Last week, I mentioned that the temple that serves as the backdrop to this scene of which we just read was the same temple that had captivated the attention and the admiration of the disciples probably just a handful of months prior as they were walking with Jesus shortly before he died. We're told that in the weeks leading up to his death, Jesus was walking out of this temple with his disciples and that they were marveling together as they walked, looking at the stones. What impressive pillars, what impressive marble. Look at how appointed the details are. It was impressive, but Jesus, who was their teacher and their master, he wasn't impressed. His response indicated that he wasn't actually happy that the disciples were salivating over this temple, which represented such immense wealth and power and grandeur. He said, there is not one stone you see here that will not be left upon another. You're impressed? It's not going to last. You think that this is impenetrable? It's going to be destroyed. You think it's beautiful? It's going to be turned to rubbish. It's a very British word, isn't it? Rubbish. Don't normally say that. But Jesus wasn't just having a bad day. He wasn't being a grouch when he said this. He wasn't putting on the sort of uh, indifference that we can, that's sort of put on when we're intimidated and we don't want to let on to it. I don't care. I don't care about that. He responds this way because they were focused on the wrong thing. They're captivated by the grandeur and the splendor of this, and he's saying, no, 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 no. That's not important. Instead of seeing the beauty and the splendor of the temple only serving to point to the immense glory and power and immovability of God, their admiration was for the structure itself. Jesus grabbed their attention and pulled their focus off the temple, off the marble, off the colonnades, the brass. And he said, it's not about that. It's about the one who created all of this and who created you. It's about God who demands your worship and your admiration. Don't focus on this. So just as the disciples had learned a lesson by Christ that they had to redirect their gaze off of the temple to God who never changes, who will never be, who will never be uh, torn down or overcome. In our passage, Peter and John call on two different groups to learn the same lesson that they had to learn. 
There's two different groups in the verses that we read that are called to redirect their gaze by Peter. The first instance is when the poor crippled man lying on the ground at the gate looks up at them. And the second instance is a little later, after the crippled man is healed, uh, they tell the crowd that had flocked to them to look at something else, to redirect their gaze. So this is a little theme that we're going to use to learn from this morning, and we're going to consider each one of these instances in turn. So let's take the first one, the cripple's gaze. Let's look again at verse 2, 3, and 4. And a man had been lame from his mother's womb. This wasn't some sort of freak accident that happened in his teenage years. He's never known what it was like to walk. He was being carried along, whom they used to sit down every day, every day, at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms, ask for money, those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began to ask to receive alms, but Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, look at us. Think about this man. This man had a hard life. He'd been crippled from birth, was totally dependent on the goodwill and sympathy of other people. How many of you like being dependent on others' sympathy? Nobody does. This was this man's entire existence, dependent on the sympathy and goodwill of those around him. His life was one of bare survival. He would be carried each day from where he spent the night to where he would be set down on the ground outside of this beautiful gate, and he would pass his day crying out to those who entered the temple, begging for money. Bare survival. Living to beg, begging to live. Living to beg, begging to live. As Peter and John passed by, we're told in verse 3 that he saw them from his seat on the ground. And he said to them, help me, have mercy on me. Have mercy. Would you have any change? And verse 4 is sort of an interesting verse. Because Peter and John we're told, stare at them, stare at him. They fix their gaze on him, and they say to him, look at us. So first, he sees them. Next, we're told, they tell him, look at us. Well, what's going on here? Well, presumably, this cripple sees them walking, but though he sees them and though he calls out to them, his shame keeps him from looking at them directly. He sees them, but he doesn't look at them. He may have his hand raised up toward them, extended for money, but his eyes and his heart are cast down from shame. This is the first instance of Peter exhorting someone to change their gaze. And he does so in a literal sense. He says, look at us. Perhaps Peter and John didn't look like the kind of men who would have much money, and so there's some of that in there too, like, hello, So he calls them to to change his literal gaze, but more importantly, he calls this crippled man to change the, the gaze, the focus of his desire. Peter will call him to change what he's what he's seeking, seeking. Peter said, Look at us, and the cripple began to give him his attention. He looks up, 
expecting to receive something from him. Let's think about what this man was hoping for. What was he wanting? What was he wanting? Money. It's simple. He wanted money. But consider this. What would money do for him anyway? Or more to the point, what could he achieve through that money? Well, maybe he could buy some food. Maybe occasionally he could afford some sort of new clothing, new robe perhaps. Imagine how dirty and worn out his robe would be from sitting daily in this spot every day, exposed to whatever elements might roll through. His life was positioned around asking people for money full time. And yet here's the thing. He didn't have the capacity to enjoy even the money that he was given. The alms that were given by sympathetic Jews put some food in his belly and presumably kept him clothed. But they did nothing for him other than allowing him to survive. And what did survival look like? What did surviving to the next day bring? More sitting in the dirt. More begging. More sympathetic looks. More not being, to jo- not being able to join in with others. More hope deferred. Never would he escape the dependence of being carried. Never would he be able to enjoy being productive and earning an income. Never would he be able to go like so many of those that were common faces to him through the beautiful gate and up through the courtyards and into the temple. Those that were crippled weren't allowed in. What I'd like to say here is that this crippled man in this condition, on the ground, begging for alms at the temple gate is a picture. It's a true story. It's historical fact, but it also serves as a picture of our condition looking for relief in this world. At its best, the world can do nothing for you or for anyone else except to give alms. That's what the world is capable of doing. Education, philosophy, therapy, money, pleasure, self-expression, whatever you want to to choose can do nothing for the crippled condition of humanity other than bring some sort of at best temporary relief. All these things are incapable of bringing anything more to you than money could bring to this man who is laying in the dirt that he had to be carried to and set down in by his friends. Perhaps for a few hours a day his belly would be satisfied, but then what happens? He gets hungry again. It is the cycle of this life. And all the while, probably even on a full stomach, well, certainly on a full stomach, he was unable to move. No amount of earthly alms could heal this crippled man, could heal his condition, could actually make his life different, could actually change him. I was sort of reading through an article recently um, that was talking about the rise of 
open relationships in cities across the U.S. And though the whole idea of this sort of idea of open relationships is, is godless, what's clear is that those who are pursuing this sort of lifestyle, these such practices, are seeking something badly. They have this hole that they are trying to fill, a hole that probably wasn't filled by former relationships, and now they're seeking to fill it by giving themselves to a life that is completely unbridled. There's no indulgence that they will withhold from themselves. And as I skimmed through the article, something became clear. Not to me, but by their own admission through what they were saying. They're not happy. At the end of the article, there was a comment that was telling and very obvious at the same time. They were discussing the fact, somebody was discussing the fact that they share everything in this sort of living arrangement. Their calendars, their groceries, their partners. And at the end of the article, this was the way it closed. They said, we even go to therapy together. And then the final words were, lots of therapy. And I think, hello, you know. But here's an honest confession of my point. Everything the world has to offer, anything you want to grab, can't make you walk. It can't fix your crippled condition. The very, very best things provide you with some sort of temporary relief or distraction. But that's it. Studying Ecclesiastes in our small groups has had some sort of impact on my thinking as, I, as we're preaching through these texts. It's, Ecclesiastes speaks directly to this conundrum. The best that the world has to offer only brings temporary relief. Ecclesiastes should be required reading for all the men and women that live in such a time as ours where we think that we have such great knowledge and understanding and it can fix ourselves. All of our attempts at satisfaction and happiness what we're reaching out for, seeking to grab hold of, receive from, from others, or even attain for ourselves, no amount of it can heal the cripple. No amount of it can actually give you what you're looking for. No amount of it will fill the hole that you have. The wise man of Ecclesiastes says this in essence, I've tried to find the answers to the meaning of life. I tried in every possible way. I left no stone unturned. I tried in the form of wisdom. I tried philosophy and learning. And then I tried in the form of pleasure. I tried by building great buildings, wonderful cities, gardens, parks. I also tried by providing for myself entertainment, sexual pleasure, music, I couldn't find it. And this is one of the great things you have to understand if you're going to understand that the gospel is good news. It's one of the great presuppositions that underlies the fact that the gospel is good news. And it is this. The world at its very best, at its very height of attainment, can do nothing but give alms. It cannot fix your problems. And that's what anyone has to recognize if they're ever to see the gospel as good news for them. They have to come to the end of their rope and recognize the world has nothing to offer me. I need something beyond this world. That's the news of the gospel. 
You can stuff yourself with pleasure, but the result will be that you will give your time and your money to a therapist because in the recesses of your heart, you're unhappy and you can't make sense of it because you're chasing happiness so hard. You can give yourself to all sorts of things, relationships. You can give yourself to substances. You can drown yourself in music that reaffirms all the thoughts that you already think. And so you create this sort of bubble around you. You can use many things, music's just one of them, to live inside of and to try and fill the hole that you have, but it's not going to fill it. You can do it with podcasts, entertainment, materialism. None of them will work. And yet, the pursuit and even the obtaining of these things is, as Ecclesiastes says, vanity. It's emptiness because they never fill you. They are a salve, a band-aid, a distraction or an escape from the troubles and the pains of this world. And as soon as you stop them, as soon as you stop pursuing them, your hunger returns. And often, even as you pursue them and obtain them, you despise yourself because not even they can do for you what they're, you're hoping they can do. The drunk doesn't think he's winning at life. To add insult to injury, he, he wakes up with a hangover. The scroller gives themselves to distraction, but those distractions only underscore what a loser you actually are. Your time, you give, you hope that it will help you, but you only come away with a deeper sense of dissatisfaction with your life. This is the alms of the world. At best, temporary relief, but they don't fix the problem. Your ankles, your knees, your feet are lame. They have no strength. You cannot move. You are sitting in the dust. Peter has no money to give to this cripple, but he does call him to redirect his gaze. Not only the gaze of his eyes, but the gaze of his heart, the gaze of his desires. He says this, I do not possess silver or gold, But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. Peter doesn't offer what the world offers. He doesn't offer money. He doesn't offer sympathy. He calls on the crippled man to stop looking to money and to change his focus to the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene. Instead of money, he gives them something of infinite more worth, the healing that comes from Christ's name. Instead of receiving some coins that would put food temporarily in his stomach, he receives the healing of God that strengthens his legs that were never formerly able to stand. It's the powerful name of Christ that heals us to the deepest parts of our being, that brings satisfactions to our deepest longings, and that brings joy to our deepest sorrows. If Jesus was interested in providing only temporary relief. Money and alms might suffice, but he is not interested in that. He's not interested in giving you something that's a Band-Aid but actually leaves you crippled. He wouldn't have had to die to do that. He had to die to offer you new life. He gave his life for yours so that it might not just be a temporary food in the stomach, but a new life. And, verse 7... Seizing him by the hand, Peter 
raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened, and with a leap he stood upright and began to walk. And he entered the temple walking and leaping and praising God. Wouldn't that be a a way to come into worship? Walking and leaping and praising God. God's always giving us ways in which we can learn from children, isn't he? Walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him being the one who used to sit at the gate outside the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. It's a beautiful scene. Not only do we see a crippled man healed, but we see the fruit of that healing. We see him now using these brand new abilities to praise God, to testify to the power that he'd experienced. He's not like the lepers that Jesus healed and many of them went away and didn't even say thank you. He's leaping and praising God in the temple. He's able to go through that gate and into the temple with Peter and John to the worship of God. But notice that as this unfolds, we're told that all the people saw him and were taking note of the fact that he was the one who was formerly the cripple. This leads to the second time in our passage that Peter redirects the gaze of those he interacts with. Look with me at verse 11. While he was clinging to Peter and John, the man that had been healed, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, when Peter saw the way that people were amazed, when he read the crowd and what they were thinking about what had just happened, he said this to them, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? We need to recognize what's going on here. From what Luke writes, we infer the crowd thought a couple of things. We need to take note of them. The first is that Peter and John had something in themselves that allowed them to heal this man. That it was their own power or piety, interesting two words to to use, that enabled this man to walk. The second thing that that they think is that this healing was done for the sole purpose of this man who was out on the ground just moments before. They think that the the miraculous healing that took place was an interaction between these two guys and and the crippled man. It had no bearing on them. They were wrong on both accounts. They were wrong about both those things. First, it wasn't Peter's power that healed the man. Peter made that clear. Yes, Jesus had sent them out and he had given the disciples power to heal the sick. Actually, in the very same exchange where he says, don't take silver and gold with you, he had said, I give you power to heal the sick. So Jesus had given them his authority and power, but it wasn't theirs, it was his. Peter makes this abundantly clear, both to the crippled man and to the crowd. It's not about them. It's about Jesus Christ the Nazarene. Walk. Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified and who can cleanse you. That's what he'll go on to talk about in the rest of the sermon. 
on the basis of faith in Jesus' name. It is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man. It was the power of Christ to heal the crippled man, not their own power. The healing was on the basis of faith in Christ. The second mistake that Peter corrects in the crowd is that the crowd was focusing on the crippled man being healed as an isolated event that only affected him. But the healing of the crippled man, it was, it was a miracle. It was a sign of God's love and care for him particularly. But it was also much more than that. The healing of the man that was lame from birth was given to the crowd as a sort of parable, a lesson from God about themselves. And that's a lesson that they would completely miss if they just thought that everything that happened was about this guy who sat outside the gate. The crowd was focused on the healing of the crippled man. They missed the point that the man that they used to give sympathetic looks to, feel bad for, sometimes give some money to, that man represented them. He was them. The poor man outside the gate, unable to get inside due to his own lack of ability and due to his condition, represented them. That poor man represents you and me. Peter says to them, We'll talk more about his sermon next week, I think. But Peter says, you're missing the forest for the trees. You're amazed that Jesus has healed this crippled man? What is, it for, what is that for the Messiah who came and died and has now been has risen from the grave, a fact to which we are witnesses, so that he could give you spiritual healing? Jesus has done all this for you, and yet you're amazed that he healed a a crippled man? You're missing the point. You don't understand that if he could heal a crippled man of his physical condition, there is hope for you? Don't look at us. Don't flock to us. Don't set your gaze on us. Set your gaze to Christ. That's what Peter is telling them. The crowd Peter spoke to might have entered through the beautiful gate. But they had not arrived yet. They might be standing in the temple, but they had not arrived. They had not arrived where they need to be, not until they passed into the holy place through the gate which is Christ. Would they be where they needed to be? They might be able to get into Herod's temple, but in order to pass through the veil into the holy place with Christ, they would need also to be healed cleansed and made well by faith in the name of the same Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who healed that man that was just sitting outside the gate. Peter says, don't be enamored by this man's story and remain as you are. Don't see what's happened to him and be amazed at it and be amazed at us. Look to Christ. Place your faith in Christ. And he says, you, what he'll go on to say, you can have the same radical change that this cripple man has just experienced. And we will see that many do find new life in Christ. And some enemies are made. 
The crippled man was looking to money. The crowd was looking to human power, piety. They were in awe of it, starstruck. Both of these groups are called to set their gaze on something else. They're missing the point. To find what they need, they need to be healed, to be clean, to be forgiven, to find real joy and purpose. They must fix their eyes, their gaze, their attention, their focus on Christ and embrace him by faith. And the same is true with you. You must have an honest conversation with your heart about what you are focused on. What is it that your eyes, your attention, your time, your money, your desires, are, what is it that all those things are gazing at? What is it that you are looking to for your hope? The point of Jesus' healing, the crippled man in our passage is to reassure us that if he can heal him, he can heal you. It's to reassure you that if you have been seeking the things of this world and are, have come to the point of being totally and completely dissatisfied because it never fills you, there is one who stands and says, look at me. There is one who stands and offers to you the fact that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And the problem is that we so often try to heal our own problems with the wrong stuff. We look to solve our marriage issues, our finance problems, our relational problems with the wrong things. We buy into the lie that if we just receive some of the alms of this world, that they'll help, that they'll transport us to that place that we want to be. And it never happens. At best, it's temporary. But you will find yourself sitting in the dust again. We're looking to things that don't bring healing rather than looking to the source that brings healing and wholeness to all things. That is what Jesus came to do. And so this morning, I exhort us as a congregation, I exhort you as men and women, as teenagers, college students, we must set our eyes on Christ. The same thing that Peter called the crippled man and the crowd to do. We must set our gaze, our affections toward him, our desires toward him, our aspirations toward him, our longings toward him. What does this look like? Well, it looks like turning our attention and our desires away from so many of the alms that we often pass our days reaching out for and instead fixing our eyes on Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith. This is what Hebrews says. We could talk a lot about what you could do to do that, but the Scripture calls you to fix your eyes. I think we know how to fix our eyes. We do a pretty good job at it. I'm just calling us to turn from what we're looking at to something else. And it is when we turn and we fix our eyes on the author and the perfecter of our faith that we will find real satisfaction. Lay aside every encumbrance and run with endurance. 
fixing our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith. It is only in looking to Christ that we who are crippled are able to run with endurance the race that is set before us. If we have the wisdom of God, we recognize how very crippled in many ways we are. We have the awareness that we need something, the very beginning of wisdom. And it is my hope and my desire and my prayer that we heed the words of Scripture, heed the words of Peter, heed my words this morning, and setting our eyes on Christ and finding in him a life that will cause you to jump and leap and praise the Lord. Let's pray together.